Exodus 20.14, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Everywhere we turn, it is there. It is used to sell things. It's used to manipulate people. It's used as a weapon against people. Properly used, it is a fountain of meaning and joy. Improperly used, it will leave you emptier than most anything in this world. But in our world, it's always there. It's always right there. And of course, what I'm talking about is sex. And we wrestle deeply as human beings with sex. We wrestle deeply at many levels with this. Most of us, excuse me, strike that, all of us, have been in situations where we should have gone the other way, looked the other way, or at least thought some other way. And that can kind of be discouraging if all that happens before lunchtime. Because we wrestle, do we not? with sexuality as human beings and as, and as believers in Christ. So I'm not going to ask you if you wrestle with sex. I'm going to ask you to consider how you do, what it means to your life, and, and where the Lord might want to take and, and bring redemption and, and healing and wholeness to your life in regard to to sexuality, and I want to ask the question, why is it fundamentally that we struggle so deeply with this subject? You know why it is that we struggle so deeply? Because God has made it to be so important and fundamental to who we are as human beings. The reason it is such a big struggle is because it is so important and I will get to the blessing side of why and how that is important. But you know, it, it is so important that messing this up messes us up. There is a primary Bible word for the improper use of sex. It is the word that God Himself took and and wrote himself onto tablets of stone on top of Mount Sinai. God himself took this word and wrote down this word. You shall not commit, here's the word, adultery. It's the primary Bible word for the misuse of sex. Now, adultery, that's a word that conjures up all kinds of thoughts in the modern mind. I mean, how antiquated is that? How obsolete in our culture is the word adultery? How hopelessly old-fashioned is that? It's a word that conjures up images of strict, sterile Puritans and scarlet letters and judgments and all these other things. It's actually not a word that you hear out in the culture much anymore. But it's so important to human beings that God put it in His top ten. Number seven, do not commit adultery. 
Now, something very interesting about the word adultery is that it's one of those words, and there are several words like this. It's one of those words that really doesn't have meaning except in relation to another word. In other words, adultery doesn't stand on its own as a word. It only has meaning in reference to another word, and the other word that helps us understand the meaning of adultery is a word that's far more important than the word adultery, and that is this word, marriage. Marriage. I'd like to to give you a sentence to take home, to to pray through. Let this kind of be etched on your heart and And it's already etched on mine, I assure you. You know, I go through the pain of this before I ever deliver it to y'all. And hopefully we'll have a very searching tone and not a ranting tone today when when it comes to this subject. Here's the, the, the sentence. Adultery is breaking a promise and losing a gift. Let me say that again. Adultery is breaking a promise and losing a gift. It is breaking a promise... To our spouse. That's the Old Testament definition of adultery. Look, even Webster's Dictionary, which last time I checked wasn't an inspired text, even the latest version of Webster's Dictionary defines adultery thus. It is, quote, sex outside the bounds of marriage. Where do you go, Webster's? In the Old Testament, it is breaking the covenant or the promise of marriage. And any kind of sex outside of marriage in the New Testament is is rooted in one main word in the New Testament. There are lots of other words. Fornication, for instance, is another Old Testament word that's related to these things. But any kind of sex outside of the covenant of marriage in the New Testament is related to, rooted in the word porneia. Now, I say the word porneia, what are you thinking of? That's, the, of course, the root word for the word pornography. Porneia simply is a larger term that describes all sexual immorality, which is breaking a promise, which includes the, the notion as well of worshiping other gods. And we'll get to that in a moment. So, what is the promise that adultery breaks? How do we define adultery? By the word marriage. Now, I know most of you already knew the definition of the term adultery, but we never know in 2012. And now I'd like to actually talk about the meaning of marriage. And you say, I know what marriage is. Well, it may be a helpful thing to, to maybe talk a little bit about the incredible blessing of marriage and the state of man given by God in marriage that makes adultery such a horrible thing, you see and such a difficult thing, and such a destructive thing to the human being. So what is marriage? Well, marriage is one of the very greatest gifts that God ever gave. You know, God said to Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helpmeet suitable for him. He caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and and he opened up and, and took a rib Uh, out from Adam and closed up the place. And out of the rib, he fashioned another being different from Adam. And, And her name was Eve. He brought her to Adam 
He wanted them to be together. He, God, is the institutor of marriage, meaning that's the way it's supposed to be. Adam immediately knew that this was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh and and came out of him, needed to be with him. Adam understood the connection, that it was for life. Adam couldn't get over the the wonder of this, this new creature. Look, this is an amazing gift to somebody who walked with God in the cool of the day. And just God just wanted to give Adam a gift that he could not have even dreamed of how wonderful it was and, and wonderful for Eve as well. But you need to understand something. God instituted marriage. Adam didn't find Eve at a singles ministry gathering. God made her. God brought her to him as this incredible gift. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman to intimately share together all of life. In Christian marriage, in marriage that's given by God, there's nothing you can't face. There are biblical reasons to divorce. I don't want to go into that right this moment. But, but, but the, the two, walking with the Lord in this, in this thing that God has put together, sharing together like no other people in your life are able to share your life, and outside the relationship with God Himself, marriage is the most sacred, the most intimate relationship we are to have. And and we must, do we not have to work on that closeness and that intimacy in, in our marriages? We're all fallen people who are married. We're all selfish people who are married, right? But marriage is rooted in a promise covenant how we know that still to this day what do we have they're called vows you know i take you to be my wife i covenant with you and with god before these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband or wife depending on who's making these vows and so we understand i mean look we understand don't we that all relationships are based on a promise you can't have a relationship with god without trust You can't have a marriage without a promise and trust. You can't have friendships without trust. You can't have a working relationship that's going to go anywhere without trust. We intuitively understand that the notion of covenant and promise and trust is built into every human relationship and the divine relationship. Marriage is rooted in a promise. And And I'll tell you how beautiful and how serious this is. You see... When, when God sent His prophets in the Old Testament, and He began, these prophets speaking, thus saith the Lord, when, when God through His prophets began to describe in picturesque language what it was like for God and the nation of Israel for them to worship other gods. You see, God didn't send His prophets just to smite Israel. You'll notice if you read the prophets, they don't say... You have worshipped other gods, you're toast. Later. That's not what the prophets say. The prophets say, you have left the Lord your God, come back to Him. He wants you. You see, the prophets call us back into relationship, but when God wanted His people to get what idolatry was like, what picture did He use? Marriage. Israel. It's stepping out on God. Israel is having an affair 
on me, God says. To use the King James language, Israel has gone a-whoring. Israel has committed spiritual adultery. We read in Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband. He's talking to Israel. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And and so loving and so committed is God's relationship to us that, that God says, I'm your husband. You're my wife. Marriage is the only relationship that pictures the beauty and depth of the relationship that we have with our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We read in Ephesians 5 that that marriage is the picture, the intimacy, the commitment, the promise, the love, the nurture, the wonder of how much our Redeemer Jesus, our Bridegroom, loves His church, we his bride. Marriage. Marriage is really interesting. It's very lofty. In other words, we're kind of, in Christian marriage, we're called to something above us. Sacrificial love. Putting the other person first. Long-suffering. Forgiveness. Repeatedly. You know, these things that we just don't have resident within us. And we're called to a nobler, higher, more wonderful life in marriage, Paul put it this way. Paul said, this is a profound mystery. There's a mysterious, lofty nature to it. But it is also inherently practical. It is tender and expressive. And when it's rooted in other-centered love, marriage is a safe place of grace and forgiveness and love. Now, you didn't hear me say every marriage is exactly where it needs to be. We are sinners. But marriage, we are called for our marriages to be a safe place of love and grace and forgiveness and closeness and truth. This is the place, this is the relationship where the most profound friendships that exist on this planet are. If you could rank the friendships on this planet and if you could know and look deep into them, I promise you that at the top of the list would be husbands and wives who love each other and move toward one another, live together, care about one another, and are closer and closer friends because you know your spouse more than you know other people. This relationship called marriage is where children are to be raised to see what a covenant looks like, to see what grace, forgiveness, love, truth, for them to to see what the society as it is lived in the basic family unit given by God looks like and what a blessing not only marriage is, but our children. But it's all, is it not, in the context of marriage. Great blessing. Statistics. And marriage is uh, that place where we grow old. It carries us into old age and very old age with mutual and tender companionship. Statistics show that people generally are healthier, married, live longer married, are more financially secure married, 
Uh, Tim Keller's new book on marriage is great, and he has a truckload of statistics about what a blessing marriage really is. Marriage rooted in promise, in the vows, lived other-centered, is so wonderful, it is worth our humility. It is, it is worth other-centered love. It's worth working on. And as two people give themselves fully to one another, something marvelous happens. Now, that's going to be, you know, there's going to be ebbing and flowing in every marriage, right? So I'm not trying to, you know, if you're wrestling right now in your marriage for, for some reason, I'm not, I'm not condemning you. I'm just telling you, this is where, where God wants to take it. This is what it looks like. So let me get to the point about the seventh commandment. Is that marriage, remember you don't understand adultery except out of marriage? Marriage is the God-given place for blessed, unhindered, enthusiastic, repeated expression of our sexuality. Doggone, that's racy, isn't it? Can I say that again, just for fun? Marriage is the God-given place for the blessed, unhindered, enthusiastic, repeated expression of our sexuality. Genesis 2, 24, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh, and they were both naked and unashamed. You see, sex is designed to be a joyful, beautiful celebration of that intimacy or closeness called marriage. That is such a gift. There are passages in the Bible that I could read to you right now. Y'all do understand the Bible's an R-rated book. Don't make me break out Song of Solomon right here. See, I don't think I could do it. I, I, think, I, I don't think I could read it out loud to y'all. I could read passages in the Bible about sexuality that make you turn red. Make me turn red. If you think that godliness... It's always to get as far away from sexuality as possible then you don't understand the Bible. God is not only pro-marriage. God is pro-union and pro-sex and celebration of marriage. In fact, there are, are many people who have called sexuality within marriage simply this, the act of marriage. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is not saying that sex is sinful. It's actually affirming sex as it is given by God. You know, honor your father and your mother is, is one part of family. Here we are in marriage. What it's condemning is not sex. It's celebrating sex in marriage. It is condemning adultery. It, it is condemning the, the twisting and the betrayal of adultery in marriage, we live in a world that is flooded with sex. Yes. Everywhere we turn. Everywhere we turn. You know, in the popular media, and by media I don't mean like news. I just mean medium of communication like books, film, television. You know, we have lots of medium of communication. In the popular medium of communication, what we find if you... Are, are tuned in is that adultery is celebrated, not marriage. You aren't winning any Academy Awards if you have a movie without adultery. 
You're not a good storyteller if you don't pop some adultery into the story. Have you ever watched a movie and you've kind of, it's a great story, and you go, why does that have to be in here? Because that's what we celebrate in our culture. It's all over. It's all over magazines. I mean, you know, I'm, I've been in line in the grocery store, and, you know, I, you look at a book, it's like Women's Day or Women's something or other, and it says how to make the best brownie, uh, best brownies ever, and right under it is this, this horrible thing. <laughs> it's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Keep your eyes on, the, on the, the conveyor belt, you know, or something. And then, of course, it, it is the television, it is the medium, it is the books. Uh, the Shades of Grey, I became aware of that actually last night. Someone said, please tell the people in my church, our church, there were people from our church, that Shades of Grey is softcore pornography. Um, I hadn't read it, so I just thought I'd pass that along. You, you can talk to them about it. Um, so it very well might be. And the Internet. Now phones that carry the Internet. It's all about the people around us, too, and the way they talk and the way they act, the way they dress. I mean, it's 24-7 immersion in sexuality in our culture. That's just the way it is. I, read, I want to read a, a piece of an article from Leadership Journal a few years ago by a, a fellow named Sky Janthani who um, is talking about a, lost, a pastor in Las Vegas. Now, that would be an interesting thing, to be a pastor in Las Vegas. And, and um, he's talking about uh, how Las Vegas used to stand out as being what they called Sin City. This is in the article. But basically saying Main Street is Las Vegas now through the Internet. And so this is what he says. He says, I was walking along the Strip. Let me, let me start with this. They say that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But that's no longer true, meaning it's come to our homes. It's not staying in Vegas. The vices once identified with Las Vegas are now accessible everywhere through the web. While walking along the strip in Las Vegas, I realized that I was simply experiencing the Internet in three-dimensional form. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Brett Johnson, a pastor in Las Vegas, goes on to say that every church needs to approach ministry today as if they live in Las Vegas. Every city is now sin city. That's true. You know, I'm not trying to go on and on about this, but I, I, don't, don't we just need to say what it is and figure out what our God of grace is, is calling us to do in response to the real world that we live in. You know, the heart issue with, with, with all of the things that we, we navigate through, the, the heart issue in all this is simply, are we becoming okay with adultery? You know, are, are we, and, and is adultery a good thing? There's a growing number of people in the culture and that frankly say adultery is a good thing. Finally, we're done with this Christian repression. We're done with all these taboos and all this guilt-making. And, and now we're finally free to pursue what we want. The age of birth control pills in the late 50s and early 60s 
And, and then casual, recreational, safe sex is in full swing in our culture and all the things I just described. But is it really leading to true fulfillment for people? We know the answer to the questions. No, it leads to disintegration of people. Not integration and wholeness as human beings before the face of God and and beautiful relationships, but disintegration and destruction and shame. That's what it leads to. It destroys. Bishop Basil Hume, formerly Archbishop of Westminster Abbey in England, called safe sex the Chernobyl of modern ethics. Y'all remember the Chernobyl disaster in Russia? That was a nuclear power plant. And man, when that thing blew up, it just, it just fried everything with radiation within, I don't remember, the, it was a, long, a big circle around it. It was a complete disaster. He says, and I, I just think these are really interesting words, that all of this freedom, all of this opportunity, all of this has led not to blessing, fulfillment, and peace in our hearts and something we can be proud of. But it has led to a Chernobyl of incredible disaster, disaster after disaster. Let me read the quote. He called safe sex the Chernobyl of modern ethics in a world of AIDS and STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. It is causing people to walk a pathway far more dangerous than they ever could have imagined. And I would add to that abortions, out-of-wedlock births. 2011, by the way, was the first year in America that more Americans were born out of wedlock than in wedlock. That's quite a statistic. And I just say that because it's true and it shows you kind of, it, it numerically kind of shows you what we're kind of looking at here today. And, and all of these things that I mentioned, they don't even begin to address the emotional, spiritual, and relational wreckage that comes from the misuse of sex. But the point of the seventh commandment isn't just to say, Adultery's bad, don't do it, it'll hurt you. That's true. That's one of the reasons God put it there, his top seven to try. You know, when, when God wrote this on tablets of stone, he wasn't trying to ruin our day. He wasn't trying to bring some archaic, kind of repressive, horrible, you know, guilt-pounding thing to us. He's literally trying to, to protect his beloved. You know, I'm, there, I'm your husband, he says to Israel. Um, but it's not just adultery's bad, it'll hurt you, don't do it. No, it, it, the seventh commandment is, is about the word adultery, and remember with me that you can't understand adultery without the word marriage. So the seventh commandment really, more than anything, is about the beauty and the meaning and the good intentions of God for us that are lost, you see. In marriage, through adultery. Does that make, do you, do you make sense here? God is all of that. He's the fountain of all goodness. God is trying to give us something more than world class. Beyond. God did not give the command to be a killjoy. He's not trying to keep people away from sex. He's trying to keep people away from sex outside of marriage. He wants us to have real intimacy and loving relationships that last a lifetime and the intimate relationship, the 
that celebrates that intimacy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about how we are created uh, by God to relate in marriage. And what he says, and I'm just going to paraphrase him, then I'll quote him, is that, is that sex, is, he says, is only one slice of a beautiful wholeness that marriage is. He says we are emotionally one, right, when we're married. We are legally one. We're economically one. We are physically one. And when you rip sexuality away from the whole relationship, it is not the same. It becomes something different. I want to quote Lewis, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union that were intended to go along with it, that make up the total union that is marriage. And it doesn't work. And it leads to the pain of shame. Tim Keller, years ago, I remember writing down from a, listening to him talk about the beginning of his church and a lot of single people in that church in Manhattan. That'd be a tough audience to talk to about the Seventh Commandment, about sex. But he put it in one sentence years ago as, as best as I've heard it. He said, basically, you shouldn't do with your body what you're not going to do with the rest of your life. Now, young people, I want to I repeat that. You might want to write that down and ponder what that means later after church. You shouldn't do with your body what you're not going to do Excuse me, you shouldn't do with your body what you're, what you're not going to do with the rest of your life because it will only hurt you and it will only hurt them. Now, some of you may be saying, okay, I got it, I got it, I do understand marriage. Hey, Joseph, that was cool. Um, I'm a sinner, my wife or husband is a sinner, we're working on marriage. This really motivates me to work on my marriage because of the beauty of this. That's great, but... I ain't committed adultery. Thank you so much for the refresher on marriage. Thank you so much for the Webster's definition of adultery. Thank you. Love it. See you next Sunday. Not so fast. <laughs> See, this is a problem for you and me, no matter who we are. For us all, because the the problem is that Jesus took up the seventh commandment in Matthew 5 and applied it to the heart. I want you to turn to Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Man, I hate it when this happens. You know, the Pharisees were so good at keeping it structural and external. And as long as you didn't do this, then you were free and clear. And then Jesus has to come and he has to say, no. It's, it's a heart issue. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. 
But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, I remember when I was a, a, a young boy in 1976, uh, I grew up in North Florida, just on the edge of South Georgia, so I'm kind of a South Georgia redneck by culture. And Jimmy Carter, the governor of Georgia, was running for president. And we didn't even know him as governor. We couldn't believe that he was the nominee. And, um, but there he was. And he was on the, the cover of Time magazine as, the, as born again. And, and you know, he, he used the words born again Christian. He's a born again Christian. And, um, and the camp, his campaign, I watched the, the uh, there's a great documentary, you know, The American Experience that PBS puts out. You can watch those. I'd recommend, if you want to see this in technical or just watch it. So he comes out as a born-again Christian. Not that the other presidents weren't born-again, but he's the one who said, I'm a born-again, use that terminology. And then there were people that started saying, and particularly in some of his ranks, well, maybe he's just kind of this milquetoast Sunday school guy. Maybe we don't want him after all. And so somebody talked him into an interview with Playboy magazine so that he could show he wasn't a milquetoast Sunday school Boy, six hours of interview that turned into three entire pages of printed interview in that esteemed and august publication. Just kidding. They asked him this question. They said, Mr. Carter, have you ever committed adultery? You know what he said? He said, yes! And he said, what? And he said, committed adultery many times in my heart. He used the words lusted after women. And it was like a bombshell on the playground of politics. Suddenly, he is this perverted person and all this. Was he perverted? No, actually, he got it. This is very faithful to his spouse. But he understood that adultery is a heart issue fought long before it is, it, it is an action in the world. You know, the truth is that everybody struggles with adultery in some form or fashion mentally in their hearts in this sex-flooded world. Is that true or false? It's true. It's okay for you to say it's true. We won't think less of you. We'll actually think more of it if you'll face it. And let's take it to Jesus, you see. Um, But it's not okay to dwell on adulterous thoughts because Jesus' words do teach us that actions begin with our thoughts. What we are taking into our minds now, what we're taking into our eyes, into our hearts, Those are the things we'll be doing later. Now, I'm not saying we always do everything we see, but that's how we get to the doing. It's like a cancer to us now because it's a betrayal of that covenant in our heart. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Jesus basically is telling you and me, Look deeper. Don't dismiss it. Look deeper. See if adultery 
is not living in your hearts. And you know, it is time for us to speak more honestly and truthfully about this. It is time for the evangelical church, the Bible-believing church, to wake up to the fact that there is rampant sexual struggle and sexual sin in the church. We all struggle in our hearts. It's not just out there, people. It's not just those people. It is us. We struggle with this. In a survey of subscribers to Christianity Today a few years ago, 45% of respondents admitted to having committed adultery. 99.99 respondents said that they have been exposed to illicit sexuality. Well, of course, they live in this culture. There is a San Andreas fault running underneath the church today. Mass-producing guilt and shame and cutting our spiritual power. And, and I say this with sincerity and compassion and as a fellow struggler. There are more, there is more shattered fragmentation here this morning in this sanctuary. There is more woundedness here in this sanctuary, more shame and despair in this room because of sexuality than any other cause. And so, the seventh commandment is for our healing. It's for our healing, you see. Because, as Galatians says, the Ten Commandments show us the true nature of God's holiness, show us our sin, and they lead us to Christ. You know, Christ just kind of augured down even harder, didn't he, on the Seventh Commandment. But isn't it, isn't, it, isn't it great that as Jesus shows us our heart problem, He also is the solution. Jesus died on a cross for your pornea and for mine. And on the basis of that pardon, which is finished and completed and can never be diminished, can never be added to, He offers cleansing of our consciences through repentance. You, got, you know, God has only given us one strategy to deal with sexual sin. Any sin. There's only one straight line drawn between our rebellion, our sin, our doing it our way, and the throne of grace. And it's called, that one straight line is called repentance. And repentance simply means this. It means acknowledging our sin and quit papering over it. It means turning to God with our sin and asking Him for the power to be given immediately or over time to be able to turn, to move away from it. The word metanoia in Greek is the word repentance. It simply means to turn. Repent, therefore, and turn to God that, time, that your sins might be wiped out and times of refreshment might come from the Lord. But let me say, finally, that it's not just to lead us to Christ so we can get some relief through forgiveness. And, and we need that in our consciences. 
But there's something else we miss here. And it's the very essence of the command, you see. What God wants to do here is He wants us to return, to not only have peace through Christ, but He wants us to return to a higher vision of real marriage. In other words, He doesn't want us just to stop doing something or get forgiveness for something that's done. He wants us to go back to the original thing that He has given to be such a blessing and for us to have a higher vision of that. And listen, we can when promises have been broken and when blessings are being forfeited, they don't have to be lost. We can run to Jesus. I close by reading Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. It's just so hopeful. I hope as you hear this, it's not just pounding you down. I, hope it, I, I, I really pray that it's opening up windows of real hope through real grace for real Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us, therefore, approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy. And find grace. Isn't that wonderful? Every time. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The seventh commandment. For our healing, you shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Lord, would you turn our hearts to you? Would you help us to trust you with your goodness? Would you forgive?